Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are thankful that we can gather together on this day, the Lord's Day, the day that you have set aside for your people to worship you in truth and spirit. We come to you, Father, not in our own righteousness, for we know that it is filthy rags. We come in the name of Christ through his righteousness. For we know that only by his righteousness are we accepted into your sight. We thank you, Father, for his willingness to leave his throne in heaven and come to this earth and pay the penalty for our debt to satisfy justice. We thank you, Father, that we can gather together and worship him who is our Lord, who is our Savior. And we pray, Father, that we would be mindful of this as we worship you this day. We pray, Father, that as we read the scriptures and seek to understand who he is and what he has done for us, that our hearts would be filled with joy and praise to thee. We pray, Father, that your spirit would teach us, for we know that unless your spirit teaches us, all is vain. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in our hearts to accomplish that which is pleasing to you. We pray for those, Father, who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. We pray for those, Father, who are your children, that you would grow them in grace as we study your word, that we would have the understanding that we need to rightly apply your word to our life. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your truth so that we might know what your will is, that we would be obedient to that will. You have instructed us in your word, Father, how we are to worship you, and we pray that we would do that this day. We thank you for the time that we've already had together in prayer and reading of the word and in singing hymns and praise to your name. Now we pray, Father, that as we open your word that you would speak to us, for we know that your word is living and active and able to divide, and we pray, Father, that it would do that work this day. Be with those that are unable to be with us today. You know the reasons. Minister to them, especially those, Father, who need your healing hand upon their body. Restore their health so that they may give you praise and glory for your goodness in their life. We pray for those that would be a way that you would watch over them and give them safety. Bless them in their time of worship, wherever that might be. We pray, Father, for those who would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual condition. Work in their hearts so that they might not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Be with our sister churches throughout the world that are proclaiming the gospel to this day. Bless them, watch over them, and protect them. And all of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 11, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 through 19. Verse 15 through 19. As we saw last week, Jesus cursed the fig tree, and then we see that he moves forward to the temple, picking up there in verse 15. 
So they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Jews would normally travel to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the three feasts that were held there at the temple. Of course, they would go there to the temple to worship the Lord. There were the temples that were built. First of all, we know of the temple that was built by Solomon. And there at that temple, it was a great and glorious temple, but it did not last. It was destroyed about 500 years after it was built. And then later, Zerubbabel built a temple. And that particular temple also was destroyed, but not completely destroyed, because when Herod came on the scene about 20 years before Christ was born, this temple was refurbished and added on to. Matter of fact, at the time of Jesus' birth, it was continuing to be built, even all the way through the time of his death. So it was a continued progress. Even at this time, as we look here in Mark chapter 11, the temple was continuing to be refurbished and added on to. And the layout of the temple consisted of the court of Gentiles, which was surrounding the main sanctuary area, which was a very large area. And that particular court of the Gentiles had a roof with great columns supporting that roof. And here is where the merchants would set up camp. And they would sell their sheep and their doves as a sacrificial offering to the people. Also, there were the money changers that would change the currency from the Roman money into Jewish money so that they could buy the animals, and also pay their temple tax. In the sanctuary, there was also the court of the women. And there was the open-air altar, as well as the holy place, with a curtain separating the holy of holies. Some of you have Bibles that have the diagram in the back of them so that you can look at the temple and the courtyard and figure out all that I am speaking to you. Of course, the temple was full of shadows and types. The place where God said that he would meet with his people, the Jews, as well as those that were converted into Judaism, which were, of course, the Gentiles. And we see that God used the temple as a teaching aid to the people showing how God would restore communion with his people. So therefore, the temple was used to teach the children. And the parents were instructed, of course, by their parents and so on. And it was passed down from one generation to the next generation. So when a child would ask his parents, what are these great columns? What do they mean? 
they would say to their children, well, these great columns symbolize for us the greatness of God, that He is a mighty God, that He holds heaven and earth in His hand, that He is able to support all things. And when they would ask, why is this altar here? The parents would say, because we are sinners, and the only way to approach God, to come before God, is through sacrifice. And the sacrifice are laid on this particular altar. A lamb is to be brought with no defect at all. And God requires the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Life is to be taken, the life of this animal, so that we might live. Now, of course, this animal is pointing to the one, the Messiah that is to come. And one day the Messiah will come and the Lord will lay him on him the iniquity of us all. And they may ask their parents, can we offer a sacrifice at home for our sins, Daddy? No, no one can. You have to bring an offering to the priest. He must offer it for us on the altar. There's only one appointed way by God to offer a sacrifice. So all of these things were instructed to the parents who instructed them to the children. And this was a process. Every year they would observe these sacrifices there at the temple. We saw three weeks ago that Jesus headed to the temple. And he had this great fanfare when he entered into the city called the Triumphant Entry, where they laid palm branches and garments before Jesus as he came into Jerusalem on the donkey. And then we saw that he went to the temple and he observed things at the temple and then he went back to Bethany. And then the next day we saw that he again came back toward Jerusalem and we saw the cursing of the fig tree. And later after that he enters the temple again. So that's where we are. And as he enters the temple, we have this particular setting that is described here in verses 15 through 19, which is called the cleansing of the temple. Now, this is the second cleansing of the temple. Now, some believe that there was only one cleansing of the temple, but it's quite evident and clear to us that there are two cleansings of the temple. The first that we have is found in John chapter 2 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where John describes the cleansing of the temple occurring just before the first Passover. Of course, the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, describe this cleansing of the temple as the last week before Jesus goes to the cross. Now what we must grasp is that similarity doesn't mean sameness. Just because two accounts are similar, it doesn't mean that they're the same thing. It's kind of like twins. Twins are similar, but are they the same person? No, two separate people. And that's what we have here. We have similarities, but yet two separate occasions. The first time was near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as John tells us. There in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The final time was just prior to his death that we have described here in Mark 
as well as in Matthew and Luke. Now in John, Jesus is immediately confronted by the temple officials who asked him this question. What sign do you show us since you do these things? And then Jesus responded to them about his resurrection, his future resurrection. He says what? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's only given in the Gospel of John. It's not given in the Synoptic Gospels because they do not describe this first cleansing. But John describes it. So therefore, the Synoptic Gospels record the second cleansing. And it says in that particular one, as we read just a moment ago, that Jesus began to heal and teach the people on this occasion. In the occasion in John, that is not included in that particular passage. Also in John, we have record of Jesus taking cord and making a whip and using that whip to run the money changers out of the temple. And it's not mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. The words, of course, of Jesus while he cleanses the temple are different in both of these particular situations. In John chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchants. And of course, in the Synoptic Gospels, which we just read a moment ago, he says, It is written, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, we also see that the people were traveling to Jerusalem and they were conveniently purchasing these animals at the temple and offering them without giving any real thought to what was taking place. In other words, it had simply become a habit. It was simply a tradition. It was simply something that they knew that they had been taught to do, but there was no heart in the matter. And it had also become big business. And of course, this is not what the Lord had commanded. So we see that Jesus challenged these ungodly practices and urged the people to obey God rather than experience convenience. Of course, this did not make the religious leaders happy, especially Caiaphas, who was high priest. His family was in charge of the money changing. Not only did Jesus' action challenge the authority of Caiaphas, they also hurt his family financially. I mean, they had grown rich from the sale of these sacrificial animals and exchanging money. The Old Testament revealed that God was zealous for true worship for His people. And we see here that Jesus' actions reveals that He is zealous for God's worship. Now since Annas and Caiaphas refused to repent after the first cleansing, Jesus takes another opportunity to remind the people of the importance of worship and that judgment is coming due to their evil deeds, due to what they have done as far as the worship of God there in the temple. So Jesus carries out this judgment upon 
the people in the temple. Now, this morning, I want us to focus on the very important truth, the true worship of the living God. First, we see in the Old Testament how serious God was about worshiping Him. We see it in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments, what do they deal with, children? They deal with who God is and how God is to be worshipped, right? In Exodus 32, we see that the Israelites violated that. And what did they do? Remember what they built? They built that calf. And they began to worship that calf while Moses was gone and he was up on the mountain. And when Moses came down and he saw what they were doing, he went into the camp and he cried out to the people, Who is on the Lord's side? And all who were on the Lord's side, he said, Strap on your sword and you go through all of those who are not on the Lord's side and you put them to death. Now that's taking it pretty serious, isn't it? They were put to death. How many? About 3,000 people were put to death on that occasion because they had not worshipped God as He had prescribed. Instead, they were worshipping an idol. They were worshipping a golden image. Of course, before He did that, He did what? He ground up that calf and He sprinkled it on water and He made them drink the water. So that was the first thing, but then they experienced something worse and that was the sword on them. And then we have in Leviticus chapter 10, the two sons of Aaron, Nadad and Abihu. And they were making strange fires on the altar. And what happened? Instantly, they died. See, God was serious about how they were to offer the sacrifice there on the altar. And they had not followed God. And as a result, they are instantly killed. And then in 2 Samuel, God promised Phinehas and Hophni, who were Eli's son, that if they did not straighten up, that they would die because of their wickedness in forsaking the worship of God. And what happened? Well, that happened. As a result of their disobedience, they died because they did not worship God in the manner God had prescribed as far as offering sacrifice to him. And then we come to the book of Ezekiel, chapters 10 and 11, which were written shortly before Babylon destroyed the temple there in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And it contains this vision that uh, Ezekiel receives from the Lord, and it reveals that Judah will be placed in exile and the destruction of the temple. For centuries, the prophets had warned Israel that their obvious violation of God's commandment, their obvious violation of the worship of God, would lead to them being removed from the promised land. And for centuries, God was long-suffering. And they didn't believe it. They ignored it. And in 72 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to Syria. The people were exiled. And we see that in 2 Kings 17. Now, let me ask you the question. When that happened, did the southern kingdom, Judah, say, man, we better get our act together? 
The northern kingdom has been exiled. And it's going to happen to us if we don't simply begin to obey God and do what God has commanded. Did they amend their ways, children? Do your head this way. That means no, they did not. Judah continued to believe that they couldn't lose their kingdom. Why? They had the temple. I mean, they looked upon the temple as their lucky rabbit's foot. I thought it was funny a minute ago when Pastor Tiago talked about lucky. And I said, I started to say, we don't believe in luck. And he knows that. But they also believed it then. They thought that the temple was their lucky rabbit's foot. But God would never allow such to continue. Of course, they thought that God would watch over them, that God would protect them. But they were wrong. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 7. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to them and he tells them exactly what God is going to do because of the things that they had done. Beginning in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 1, the Lord, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there the word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So in other words, he first of all says, look, all you got to do is repent. All you got to do is amend your ways, and I will allow you to stay in the promised land. But what does it say then? He goes on and says, do not trust in your lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You see how they were exalting the temple of the Lord? They think, and because of the temple of the Lord, that they had a free pass. He says, For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and, your na- and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods, to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense and bail, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, speaking of the temple, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in shallow, where I sat my name at first, and see what I did to it because of of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, says the Lord, I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, and you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you, your fathers, as I have done to Shallow, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole 
prosperity of Ephraim. So we see that Jeremiah pronounces God's judgment upon Judah for forsaking the Lord and not worshiping God as they were to worship God. So judgment is coming. As vital as the temple was, they should have seen that it was merely a building, a building that God had designated for His presence. God is omnipresent. What does that mean, children, that He's omnipresent? God is where? God is everywhere. You've learned that in the catechism, right? God is everywhere. But yet we see that the Lord of creation is not limited to one location. Even though He may choose to appear most strongly in one place. And that's what He had done. He had chosen to dwell with Israel. We saw in the wilderness where? In the tabernacle. Now he has chosen to dwell with his people in the temple, in the holy of holies. And this is the point of Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 12, which describes the glory of God. But in those two chapters, it describes the glory of God as departing from the temple and heading east to a mountain outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, what mountain is outside the city of Jerusalem to the east? The Mount of Olives. So the departure of God's glory from the temple signifies Judah's sin. Judah's sin had become so heinous that the Lord said he could not dwell any longer with his people and protect that city because of their sinfulness. But yet the Lord promised and pledged to return to His temple and purify His people. Again, remember this is a vision that is given to Ezekiel. And he goes on and he continues that vision. And there in chapter 43, beginning in verse 1, Ezekiel gives these words about that vision. Afterwards, he brought me to the gate. And the gate that faced toward the east and beheld the glory of the Lord of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The vision were like the visions which I saw by the river of Shebar. And I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faced toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So he says, here's the vision, and it is describing this vision. When was this vision fulfilled? Well, the faithful Jews knew this prophecy, and they knew to look for the return of the glory of God. And they longed for the glory of God. But centuries later, the leaders of the church, the chief priests, the scribes in Jerusalem, no longer 
could be called faithful Jews, faithful remnant. They instead assaulted the glory of God. The glory of God is Jesus Christ. And the Jewish leaders are assaulting the glory of God. We see clearly in Scripture that Jesus indeed is the radiance of the glory of God, as Hebrews 1.3 says. And Jesus stood where? Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, which was to the east of the temple. And there the glory of God stood just as Ezekiel had proclaimed here in Ezekiel 43, 1-5, as well as in chapter 11, verse 23. So Jesus' triumphant entry came from the east as He came into Jerusalem, just as Ezekiel had promised and predicted. And God's glory returned to the city from the east. But the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were not ready. They were not prepared for the glory of God. And instead of welcoming the glory of God, instead of welcoming Jesus Christ as the glory of God, they did what? They sought to destroy Him. Just as their fathers had done years earlier to the true prophets of God. What did Jesus say in Luke 13, 34a? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her. So therefore, not only would they seek to stone the prophets, but they would seek to kill the glory of God. Earlier we read Malachi chapter 3, which also foretold of the messenger. Who is the messenger that Malachi chapter 3 is speaking of there? Well, the messenger, of course, is John the Baptist. That John the Baptist would come before the Messiah. And that John the Baptist would usher in the glory of God into the temple and then bring judgment. John the Baptist was commissioned from heaven to call the people to repentance and prepare them to receive the Messiah and His kingdom, of course, which is another proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah because He followed John the Baptist and John the Baptist recognized Him as Luke 1.17 says, He will also go before Him in the spirit and power of his, uh, uh, Elijah, to turn the hearts of the Father to the sons and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So uh, Malachi points out that the messenger is the message of the covenant. Or the Messiah is the message of the covenant. The one who was blessed by God, would come and he would negotiate peace. He would settle the iniquity, the sins between God and man. And John the Baptist came preaching that. And Jesus Christ, whose mediation brings about and establishes the covenant of God. 
For He is given for a covenant which is for man's salvation, as Isaiah 49, 8 says. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and I will give you a covenant of people to restore the earth, to cause them in to inherit the desolated heritages. Now though Jesus Christ is the prince of the covenant, yet he condescends to be the messenger of it. That he might have full assurance of God's goodwill toward men upon his word. Now how this should be a warning to all of us today. Jesus Christ, we know, is coming again. He's coming in a glorious consummation of His kingdom. The question is, are we ready for His return? Will He find us as good servants or unprofitable servants? Israel thought they were ready for His coming. But we see quite clearly they were not. Now second, we see that the attitude of worship hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Sinclair Ferguson says, When Jesus arrived at the temple, he demonstrated his authority there as God's priest. The temple had apparently been turned into a marketplace where dishonest commercial exploration was taking place. Had the priests any sense of dignity or authority, they would have cleansed God's temple long ago. But it took God's appointed priests to drive out those who desecrated the house of God. From the beginning, God had pronounced that the temple was to be what? A house of prayer. A house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56, 7. And even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be acceptable on the altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So God's name was to be praised in the temple, but that was no longer the case. In fact, God's name was being dishonored. Worship was being corrupted. And it was being dishonored and corrupted by the very ones that God had given a charge to guard His name, the priests. And Jesus Christ could no longer tolerate this wickedness, even if it meant that it would cost him his life, and it did. He goes into the temple to cleanse it. So here we see holy wrath. The holy wrath of Jesus Christ burning against all that had taken the place that God had designated as His house and corrupted it. 
So we could say single-handedly, Jesus cleansed the house and seeks to restore the place to its original purpose. John MacArthur says, Judgment on the nation began with the temple. Now, as stated, the temple was a vast, complex place that accompanied thousands of worshipers. You had the outer court that I mentioned earlier of the Gentiles. This was the area that Caiaphas had allowed the merchants to come into with their money exchanging and with all of their animals. In other words, what was he doing? He was allowing the merchants to actually push the Gentiles out. To push them out of their place of worship. In other words, more or less they were saying to the Gentiles, you are no longer welcomed into the court of Gentiles. There were literally hundreds of thousands of animals to be sacrificed and they were being brought there and sold there at the court of the Gentiles. Also, you had the money changers who were changing money for, uh, to buy the animals as well as for the temple tax. During the week of the Passover, Josephus said there were over a million animals to be sacrificed. So this operation was a big operation. Matter of fact, it became known as the Bazaar of Annas. Named after, of course, the greedy high priest who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And we see later when Jesus is put on trial, he goes to Annas first. Now, Jesus turned Annas' bazaar into complete chaos. I mean, can you imagine? And again, we see here that Jesus was not a meek, small man. He went in there and he took these big old wooden tables filled with these coins and began to flip them over and coins went everywhere. Can you imagine the chaos? What are most people going to do if you have coins on the table and your table's flipped over? Can you imagine all those merchants running around trying to gather their coins up? Pure chaos was taking place here. As Jesus seeks to cleanse the house of these wicked individuals. Now, as Jesus displays his zeal for the holiness of God and the holiness of his temple, it reminds us of what Proverbs, I mean, Psalms 69.9 says. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And that's what's taking place here. Jesus is consumed with zeal for his father's house. Jesus also stopped people from using the temple grounds as a shortcut to carry their goods from one side to the other side, to the city, from the city over into, because it says there that he stood there in their way. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. They were scared to death. They didn't know how to respond. I mean, we wouldn't know either. I mean, some of them probably thought he was a maniac. 
And they weren't going to get in the way in front of someone that was carrying on like this. They were fearful of him. They did exactly what he said. Because they didn't know what he might do to them. Remember earlier, and probably that story had been told. He took a whip. Maybe some of them were wondering, is he going to take another whip again? Is he going to start beating us and run us out of here? But yet we see that Jesus displays his authority. But this clearly reveals to us that the Lord Jesus Christ burned with wrath against those who had perverted worship, especially for profit. We saw how serious God was about worship in the Old Testament. That He will not allow worshipers to desecrate His worship. And this is a serious matter. And Jesus gives the same message. So by cleansing the temple, Jesus was taking on the most powerful religious group of His day. They were lawless. They were corrupt. As we see later in their effort to crucify Jesus. John Phillips says... Nothing could have been more calculated to kindle their wrath than to throw out the temple, the merchants, and money changers who they controlled. I mean, what Jesus was doing, it was like he was putting gasoline on fire. We could say that Jesus signed his death warrant by this action. On that day, his days were clearly numbered. But then we see something very unique. We see that he began to teach the people. There in verse 16 and 17, he teaches them that his father's house is a house of prayer and that they are to have a zeal for his father's house. Jesus points out that it's that house of prayer, again, from Isaiah 56, 7, and that all sacrifice should be abolished because the spiritual sacrifice of prayer and praise should continue and it will remain forever. But the sacrifice of animals is ended. Also, that all nations are included, not only Jews, But whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. This was an Old Testament teaching. It said all nations in the Old Testament. That's why they had the court of the Gentiles. And they had taken the Gentiles' place of worship. And turned it into a den of thieves. So Jesus is rebuking them for that. Because they had shown prejudice toward the nations whom they should have been inviting in to worship the living God. So they were cheating the Gentiles by imposing upon them these ridiculous prices for these animals and selling them to them, as well as charging them exuberant prices for exchanging their money. Now, in closing, what application... Does this have for you and me? Well, hopefully it's clear 
that we must make sure that your worship and my worship, our worship is pleasing to God. He has given us in His Word how He is to be worshipped. In other words, God has not left it up to our own imagination of how we are to worship Him. But yet many people think just that. That they can worship God any old way. Grace Baptist Church holds to the regulative principle, which states God commands churches to conduct public worship services using certain distinctive elements affirmed in Scripture, prohibits any and all other practices in public worship. If it is not firmly commanded or expressed, we are not allowed or not allow it in our worship services. Only those things which are implied logically by good and necessary consequences. In other words, we only do what the Word of God says. Of course, there's another view called the normative principle. It teaches that whatever the Scriptures did not forbid in Scripture is permitted in worship, as long as it is agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. In short, there must be agreement with certain practices of the church and no prohibition in Scripture. Now, one of the most important questions that we face in our generation is this. How should we then worship? R.C. Sproul has written an article on this that is very good, and I encourage you to go to his website and find that. But let me summarize some of what he says. The how of worship is hotly disputed today. There's no question about that. I mean, if you had time, you could drive around just in this area right here, and you would see multiple ways people are seeking to worship God. It has been described as the war of worship. It appears that contemporary worship has won the battle. If you didn't know it, we're not contemporary worship. We're what most call traditional worship. Traditional worship, most people believe, is out of style, irreverent. But that's not the case. We must continue to ask the question, how? And of course, the best place to answer the question, how, is to begin with the question, who? Who is to be worshipped? Who is it that the Scripture talks upon for us to worship with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, the answer to that question, of course... Is easy. All of our children can answer that question. Who is to be worshipped this morning, children? God, right? We come together to worship God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
So from my Christian perspective, the obvious reply is that we are called to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We sang the doxology this morning, and that's the very focus of the doxology. As easy as this answer is on the surface, when we see the concern given to this question throughout the Old and New Testament, we realize that fallen creature... It is one of our most basic and fundamental inclination to worship something or someone other than the true God. Again, the first four commandments focus on the triune God, whom we are to worship according to His being. And likewise, the New Testament calls us to honor God with true worship. And Paul reminds us in first, I mean in, in Romans chapter one, what? He reminds us in Romans chapter one that the heart of fallen creatures refuses, refuses to worship God and to honor God and to show proper gratitude to Him with praise and thanksgiving. It is imperative that we know that true worship, what true worship is, and that the object of our worship is the triune God. Jesus pointed this out to the woman at the well. Remember the argument that she wanted to get in with the Lord and say, well, you Jews, y'all worship there at the temple. We worship here on the mountain. And what does Jesus point out to her? He points out clearly to her that the where really doesn't matter much. See, the New Testament church did not have a central sanctuary where all true worshipers must take place. They were not commanded to migrate to Jerusalem, to the temple any longer. And of course, throughout biblical history, from the resurrection of Jesus onward, we know that people began to meet together. Christians began to meet together. And it began where? Well, it began in homes, in small locations. There in those early years, the church home in the first century. It wasn't something intended to avoid institutionalized churches, but basically due to the availability. I mean, the church was so small, it couldn't meet in a home at that time. As the church grew, then they began to meet where? In buildings. And let me add that there's nothing holy about a building. You know that we began worshiping where? 20 years ago almost. No, over 20 years ago. In a home, in a house. And then we moved into a storefront. And worship there. And then we move back into a house and add it on to that house, right? And now we're here. Every place we have sought to worship God, but there's nothing holy about those places. Now let me add to that. That doesn't mean that we're to be irreverent as we gather here. As, as written in newsletter, what did I tell you children? Maybe, I hope your parents read it through. I encourage parents to read this, children. We're, we're not coming in here and playing hide and seek. 
I mean, we got a big building. Man, we can really have fun in a big building, crawling up under the pews, jumping the pews, and doing all the sort of things. No, this is where we come to meet with God. Now, there's nothing holy about it, but yet we do look at this as a place to where we gather and we pray that God's presence would come and meet with us here in this place. What about the wind? Well, obvious. It is the obligation of all believers to worship God every day, all the time. But the question is, has God appointed a special time for the gathering of His people? And the answer, of course, is yes. In the Old Testament, He established the Sabbath. The term Sabbath meant seven. And, of course, also means day of rest, because on the seventh day... God rested from creation. A cycle of one in seven. In the Old Testament economy, it was the seventh day of the week that Jews gathered together to worship the living God. Of course, I should say, even before the Jews became a nation, it was one in seven. It's a creation ordinance. Now, of course, after the resurrection... The Christian community split from the Jewish community. And we know that the day was changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. But yet the seven-day cycle remained. And we understand that when Christians assembled together for worship, they gathered together on the first day of the week and they commune with the saints in a local congregation But our worship of God goes beyond these walls and incorporate others as we pray for others and as we think of other believers throughout the world. Now the where and the when questions pale in significance when we turn our attention to the how. The how question is ultimately determined by the who question. When we worship God as He has told us, this is the apparent crisis in the revelation of revolution of the worship of our day. This is where the problem is. See, the driving force behind the radical shift is how we worship God is not because we've discovered some new information about God's character, but rather because of pragmatic studies on what works. See, new ways of worship have been devised to accommodate the lost. Not God's covenant people. We are told that churches ought to be seeker-sensitive. That we should design our worship to be appealing To the lost. Now that may work for evangelism. But we must remember the purpose of worship is not primary evangelism. Worship and evangelism are not the same thing. As Christians, we are called to ascribe 
Worship and praise to God our Redeemer. Worship isn't designed for unbelievers. That's why unbelievers are miserable in a worship service. They have no desire to worship the living God. So worship is not designed for them. Worship is designed for believers. And believers are to seek to please God. And God must always be regarded as what? Holy, holy, holy. So as we gather together, we worship the holy God Almighty. And we approach Him in a holy manner. It grieves my soul when I watch some of these, quote, worship services on TV who flippantly come before God. And if you don't believe God's a long-suffering God, just watch one of them. I mean, any moment I'm thinking, Lord, are you going to send fire from heaven? But again, I mean, for centuries he put up with Israel and their false worship, and he's doing the same today. But God's holy character must characterize our worship and how we respond to Him. He promises to meet with those who worship Him in truth and spirit. He has promised that. So we must seek Him in truth and spirit. We are called His holy temple where His spirit dwells. And He encourages us to call upon Him, that we, we have the privilege of calling Him our Heavenly Father, Abba Father, and we're to draw near to Him and have intimate communion with Him in worship. We do not come. We never are to come to this place of worship for entertainment. And it's an abomination to God that so many meet and seek to entertain instead of leading people to focus on Jesus Christ and His great salvation. That's why the church is in such a disarray today. Until the church gets back to worshiping God in truth and spirit and focusing upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and focusing upon His great work of salvation, there will be no revival. There will be no awakening. There will be no change. I'm talking about within the church to where we can have a positive influence upon this world that we live in. R.C. Sproul said, I heard one theologian say recently that he was not only pleased with the innovation style of worship and music, but thought that what churches need today is music that is even more funky. When we hear clergy and theologians encourage the church to be more funky in worship, I fear that the church has lost its identity. 
And I agree with him. The church today has lost its identity. Remember that the what, where, when, and how of worship must always be determined by the character of the one who is the living God who is holy, holy, holy. John Calvin said, if the church of God have contacted any pollution, all the children of God ought to burn with grief. But as God has not put arms into the hands of all, let private individuals groan till God brings a remedy. I do acknowledge that they are worse than stupid who do not displease at the pollution of the temple of God. And that it is not enough for them to inwardly distress if they do not avoid the poison and testify with their mouth whenever any opportunity presents itself that they desire to see a change for the better. But let those who do not possess public authority opposed by their tongue, which they have at liberty, those vices which cannot remedy with their hand. What is Calvin saying? He's saying that you and I must use our tongue to rebuke. To rebuke those who do not worship God as God has prescribed to us in the Bible. We must not idly stand by and allow it to continue. We must speak forth the truth. Now you may have people turn their backs on you. You have, might have people say that you're too radical. Well, if they say it, said, well, read what Jesus did in Mark chapter 11. I think Jesus was pretty radical. And I think Jesus had called us to be pretty radical too. And that we must, we must honor God. And we must seek to worship God as God has prescribed Him to be worshipped. Each and every time that we gather together for worship. May God use you and me to be His witnesses, to be light in this dark world, to speak forth the truth so that He might be pleased to be, bring renewal of worship about in our day. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we have it all together and nobody else has it together. I'm not saying that. There's a lot of things that we can improve on. We must never think that we have reached it. Reformation must continue every time we gather together as God's people to worship Him, to seek to make sure that we line up with God's Word in every way and that God would speak to us and bring conviction to us if there's anything that we do that dishonors Him and displeases Him. We must always be reforming in our worship. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that we have been convicted and that we have cried out to you and asked that you would work in our lives, that you might use us to bring honor and glory to your name. We continue to pray, Father, for those that would be here this day not truly desiring to worship you because their hearts have never been changed. How we pray, Father, that today would be the day of salvation. How we pray, Father, that you would use your saints to be light in this dark world. And we pray, Father, that we would see in our day and time a true change take place to where worship is pleasing to thee. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.